If you haven't been with us during the season of Advent, we've been reading our, our text together, which has been Romans 5, 1 through 5, using various texts to kind of couple with that. Um, so we're going to read that together. I'll get us started on it, and then we'll kind of keep the cadence going. So this is what Romans 5, 1 through 5 says. Together. Therefore, since we have been justified by faith, is the word of the Lord. Well, we had four weeks to get it. You can take a seat. <laughs> I, uh, I wasn't feeling well on Friday, <clears throat> and my family's been kind of sick, and so I came home and crashed and just totally fell asleep, and uh, somebody's knocking at the door. I won't say who, and uh, they're like, dude, me and some people got this sweater for you. We really need you to wear it on Sunday. Um, and then I put it on and realized it was forged in the fires of Mordor with how hot it was. Um, and so if I pass out, um, we'll see how well we do with it. If you're wondering, it's Charles Spurgeon, and it says the Spurge, if, that, if you're wondering what it is. Of course, I have to quote him today, um, which is an anomaly. Um, so here's, here's what we're going to do. We're going to wrap up our time of Advent, the season of Advent. If you're not familiar with what that is, uh, Advent is this season every year where we line up uh, as Redemption Peoria with the church calendar and essentially say, hey, let's take a time before we get to Christmas and open gifts and celebrate all that is good this coming uh, Tuesday and Wednesday. Let's process what it meant to not have those things in two ways. Uh, the first way is there was a time when the people of God didn't have a Messiah. They waited for Jesus, right? They're waiting for his arrival. And then we too, as the people, know that Jesus has historically come, but we're longing and we're waiting for him to return. And so we can put ourselves in this position to recognize that we desperately long for Jesus, not because our heart's grown, but because we look at the world around us and we see false versions of joy, false versions of hope, false versions of peace, and false versions of love. But we know the one who created those things is going to return one day and and show off, just show off and show what those things really are. And so uh, what we're trying to do in this season to finish uh, is we're going to uh, talk about love today. And we've been talking about hope and peace and joy and, and what that looks like amidst a broken world, a world that doesn't have those things. Okay, so that's what we're doing in the season of Advent. Uh, today is a little bit different in that we're going to talk about love. And just so you kind of understand what our preaching calendar is going to be looking like, um, we're going to talk about love. We're going to have uh, two standalone sermons that we feel like are two important things that we want to talk through. Uh, John's doing one and I'm doing one. And then we're going to start in the beginning of the year uh, in the book of Malachi. We'll take uh, about eight weeks to do Malachi. And then we're going to take seven weeks after that. Um, and we're still working on the title, exactly how we're going to uh, uh, describe it, name it. But essentially, we want to take seven weeks. We feel like there's a cold moment right now, not just with our church, but with the church at large, where we feel like we want to make kind of a stand and put a flag in the ground and say, hey, here's where we stand on some 
pretty countercultural ideas. Um, so we want to talk about uh, gender. We want to talk about why we hold to Jesus as exclusive Savior of the world. Um, all these different issues. I'm not going to give it away. There's a bunch of things that I want to uh, say right now, but I feel like I'll start preaching one of those things. Um, so we're going to talk about a, a few of those things, seven of them specifically, and where we stand on those things that we know are kind of countercultural to different uh, types of sects of Christianity and, and, and the culture at large. So that's just kind of what we're going to do at the beginning of the year. That will take us all the way to Easter. Easter. Cool? So let me pray for us. Um, today we're going to be talking about love, uh, and that should be uh, pretty easy. So let me, uh, let, me, let me pray for us. Father, I pray that as we <clears throat> navigate this conversation um, and uh, really try to look to you uh, for guidance, uh, I pray that you would help us uh, see well what love is and what we can do with it and why you gave it and why it's you. Um, we pray that you would uh, make clear to us um, how we're supposed to navigate First uh, Corinthians 13 uh, and then the beginning of 14. Let us see that well. We love you in Jesus' name. Amen. So uh, our text is pretty short. It's the very last verse in First Corinthians 13 and the first two words of chapter 14. Uh, I'll get to explaining that in a minute. Before I do, though, I want to just explain to you why um, this is not going to be easy. And to be honest with you, why my job sometimes is difficult, because essentially mo- most of my role here for, for our church is to think through what the text is saying and do my best to explain by the power of the Holy Spirit what the Bible is saying right there. Right? So we come across the text and we go, what does God want us to know? And that's not easy. And, and my relationship with words is frustrating at times. I have uh, two boys who are uh, 12 and 10, are about to be 10, and they're getting to the age where they're knowing the cool new words that I don't know. And so part of me feels like I'm going to lose my mind if I hear the word cringy one more time, or I hear the word he's a bot, or try hard. I'm like, what are you saying? I remember the first time, this is probably two years ago, somebody used the word that's on fleek or whatever. And I was like, no, I won't do that. I will never use that word. I refuse to. Because the reality is I have, a, I have an option. Just it, personally, we all have a choice. You can choose to embrace the, the, the living language of English and continue to go along with it. Or you can just go, I refuse to use that. Some of you have refused to use words, and they've actually come all the way back around. I remember when I was in high school, my coach would always call us cats. Man, these cats, right? And at the time, it was starting to be cool again to call people cats like it was in like the 40s, right? And so kind of went full circle. So there's this weird thing that I and you speak the English language, have with words that we got to wrestle with, and love is complicated. The word love is extremely nuanced. And so instead of just saying that, I went to work um, and I want to try to explain why it's so difficult. Instead of just dropping some Greek words or quoting C.S. Lewis from the four loves, I, I felt like, how can we create a paradigm? So I put together a chart so you can understand how complicated this is as we're going to try to describe love. So I think there are four levels to how complicated this is. So let me give you level one. Level one, when we talk about love, you can put up the first uh, there, is the part of speech. Oh, you, want, you don't have to do the third one, but that's okay. That, leave it there, just level one. So the first level is when I say love, We have to decide what part of speech are we using. Are we using a noun like I'm in love or I love them as a verb? Sometimes we can use it as an adjective. We just have to add other letters. That's lovely. That's a describing word, right? So first level one is when we say, hey, let's talk about love. Well, level one is what part of speech are we talking about? Are we talking about the noun love? Are we talking about the verb love? Are we talking about the adjective love? What are we talking about here? 
but it gets more difficult than that. Go to level two. Once we describe what part of speech we have, then we have to describe the kind of love. So let's say we say, okay, fine, we're going to talk about the verb love. So we have the verb love, how uh, love is in action. It's movement, if you don't know what a verb is, right? Well, here's the kinds of love, and these are just some examples. Uh, you have your, are we talking about your spouse? Are we talking about a friend? This is where C.S. Lewis, The Four Loves, comes in. Are we talking about a child? I mean, the classic example is I don't love my wife the way that I love my kids and vice versa. Or we just neuter love, like, you, you know, we love pizza. We, uh, this woman uh, uh, last year, if you didn't see this, in the U.K. married her carpet. Um, quite literally married her carpet. And I'm not joking. You can look this up. His name is Matt. I'm not joking. Um, I'm not kidding about that. You can look it up, Okay. So, so when I say kind of love, uh, there, there's this element, okay, I want to love, now let's say, okay, but I want to love, now I want to love my child. Well, how I'm going to love my child is going to be different how I love my, my spouse, right? So we have this, this kind of love, which is fine, but that leads us to level three. Once I decide that I'm going to verb love my child, now I have to begin to get into the nitty gritty by whose definition? So if I'm going to love my, my uh, uh, child, let's say I'm going to uh, uh, love Titus and I choose to love Titus, well, now I have to discuss, uh, divide by whose definition? So is it by their definition, the way that Titus wants to be loved? Is it by my definition? Is it by culture's definition? Is it by God's definition? So let's work through this example for a second because this is extremely complicated and you can see how we can go any way through this. We pick the part of speech, it's a verb. I want to choose to love. I want to exhibit love. I want to exhibit love to my child, okay? And exhibiting love to my child, I want to do it based on, let's say, my own. I choose the way that I want to love. I don't care what he wants and how he wants to be loved. I don't care what culture says. I don't care what God says. I choose to love Titus the way that I want to love Titus, Well, now this provides probably the hardest way to do this. Maybe because we're in church, we'll use God's version of it. So verb, child, God's way of loving. Well, now this creates the the probably most difficult part of this conversation on love, and that's context. Because now, if I go, I want to show love, I want to show love to my child, I want to show love to my child based on how God says I should love my child, well, here's what's interesting. Now I get into the nitty-gritty, and let's say as a father, I'm not to provoke my children, to provoke my sons? Well, the way that I would provoke Titus is not the way that I would provoke Corbin. Now there's even further nuances. Those of you who have kids understand there's this uh, tone, the way that you are to love your kids, but your kids receive love differently. Now that's not just true for the way that your kids are. That's true for every human. The way that uh, men in the room, you would love your wife is not the way that I would love my wife. Or you would love your neighbor is not the way that maybe your neighbor would receive love and how God and how that would interact. and, And you get the idea, right? This becomes really, really complicated. Love is, um, and this is why Ed Sharon and every R&B group are billionaires, right? Because they, they can navigate these conversations and go, oh yeah, which is interesting for a moment because we see this chart and we recognize in the English language, we've crammed all of these, which other languages have other words for love. We've crammed all these words into this one word, but at the same time, things like art help us um, feel something we don't know how to express. This is why maybe when you read a poem, or you watch a movie, or you listen to a song, right? Like Ed Sheeran, and you go, that's how I feel. That's how I feel this love, and this expresses it in a really, really cool way. That's something going on within you, right? Love is complicated. It's really, really complicated. Now, with that being said, as complicated as it is, 
right? As much as we want to look at these four levels, and maybe that's not how you would do it, I'm telling you this is the way that my mind can categorize it and show how difficult this word love is. At the same time, my three-year-old, my three-year-old daughter can come up to me and say, I love you, daddy. And she means it. Now you can say that's, well, that's chemical interaction or bonding or whatever. To the extent in which she understands love, she says she loves me, and she does. In the same way that some of you have just been married in the last couple of years, say you love your spouse, and you may talk to, say, Jim, and Jim goes, you have no idea what love is, right? Because the extent of what he understands, even though it's so complicated and so nuanced and so dense, yet at the same time, it's so simple. And we get this. We can get this. Now, here's the last thing I'll say before we jump into our text. What I... Um, what I love about love, what I think is super interesting about love, is that when Scripture declares God is love, we have something theologically we can wrestle with. We'll come to that text here in a second. But um, here, here's what I mean. There are things about God that we can relate to. These are called his communicable attributes, his way that we can understand, right? And then he has other things that we can't understand about him. These are called incommunicable attributes, right? So his incommunicable attributes is he's all-knowing. No one in the room, some of you think you are, some of you, no one in the room can go, yeah, no, I know what it's like to be all-knowing. I'm trying to figure that out. Nobody can do that. Or to be everywhere at once. Nobody, God isn't, you are not able to relate to God in that way. Uh, God's invisible, right? He's inspired. You don't, you don't know what it's like to be invisible. Those are incommunicable. We can't understand that. But there are things that describe God that we can look at that are communicable, that we can relate to. His holiness, We could see his holiness and we go, okay, he's holy. I understand what it means to be holy. I can resonate with that even though I'm not completely there. He's gentle even though I'm not completely there. He's loving even though I'm not completely there. Now, what we do with the communicable attributes, the things that we can relate to God on, we have to look to him as the standard. We can't look to God on the standard of invisibility because we don't know what it's like to be invisible. But we can look to him and go, okay, God, so when we get to level three, it's not based on culture, it's not based on yours, it's not based on theirs, but it's based on God because God is love. And so I can look to him as the standard because I fall short. It is communicable, but I fall short of how he uh, lives it out, who he is in that. So if that's not complicated enough, you can open your Bibles to 1 Corinthians chapter 13. We're going to get into it. 1 Corinthians chapter 13. uh, We're going to do verse 13, and then we're going to do chapter 14, the very beginning of verse 1. Now, I recognize that some of you might go, well, we're taking the Bible out of context. I'm not. I'll give us the context here in a second. But there's a reason I want to stop where we are. This is what uh, 1 Corinthians 13, 13, and 14, 1a says. So now faith, hope, and love abide, these three, but the greatest of these is love. 14.1 starts like this, pursue love, okay? Now, um, FYI, your Bible originally was not written, not just with not chapters and verses, not even like punctuation and grammar, not like, like you don't have commas and, and periods and all that stuff very early on. Now, setting all that aside, regardless, the context I still think is fine to grab the way that we're grabbing this text, meaning um, usually 1 Corinthians 13, if you're not aware of, is like the greatest chapter written, not like, it is the greatest chapter on love ever written. And in being written in this way, usually it's kind of put towards marriage. You'll hear it at a wedding or whatever it is, which is fine. But the reality is um, it's right between two very large uh, uh, texts in chapter 12 and 14 on gifts. 
Chapter, uh, chapter 12 talks about describing these gifts, how we need each other. And then 14 describes how a lot of these gifts play out. And smack between those two chapters on gifts, the way that God gives everyone gifts or gives believers gifts, is this chapter on love. Okay, I fully recognize, if you have your Bibles open, I fully recognize... 14, 1 goes on to say, pursue love and earnestly desire the spiritual gifts, especially that you may uh, um, prophesy. But what I'm trying to say is what I want to communicate. I think there's a, uh, those first two words are a link to the next section. Meaning we need to think the way that we interact with one another when it comes to gifts. We need to think about love. Love should embody everything that we do. And so I don't feel like I'm, I feel comfortable with not taking it out of context there. But ultimately I want you to see what we're going to do uh, with, with this verse. So here's what I want you to see. The first part of 1 Corinthians 13, 13 says this. Now faith, hope, and love abide, these three. Now we didn't cover faith hope and uh, our, uh, we didn't cover faith. We did do joy and we did do peace in our season of Advent. But he says in this next part, the greatest of these is love. Now I would contend that love, if we did do peace and joy, and he wrote it here in the text, greater than peace and joy is love. Greater than mercy is love. Greater than grace is love. Greater than judgment is love. Okay. Now, we normally would never pit these things up against with one another, and I don't think that's what it's doing here. And yet it makes this statement, uh, two statements actually. The first one is, the greatest, the greatest is love. And the second statement is, pursue the greatest. Pursue love. That's all I want to do together. It, it can be complicated and nuanced, I get it, but there are at least some clear layouts here of two things. One, Love is the greatest, and two, we're to pursue love. So let's go through both those sections. Here is my best attempt to lay out why I think the Apostle Paul is saying love is the greatest. I'm going to give a bunch of verses for you. Some will be on the screen, some won't be, but... You're more than welcome to turn your Bibles there if you want to. So here's four reasons I think God gives us why love is the greatest. Number one, in 1 John chapter 4, verse 8, and 1 John chapter 4, verse 16, it makes these statements. The one who does not love does not know God. You ready? God is love. 1 John 4, 16. God is love. And the one who abides in love abides in God. And God abides in him. Okay. Sometimes there's a very few other examples where it says God is. It says God is holy, right? There are moments. But let's just meditate on this first idea. Love is the greatest. And you're going to describe God. And you're going to go, what? What should I use? Love. Now, I understand there's the way that the world would describe God's love. There's different denominations, all that. But here's what we have in the text. God is the very nature, the pinnacle at his epicenter. Dare I say what holds the Trinity together is love. Love. Love is the greatest. It doesn't say here God is hope, though he absolutely is. It doesn't say God is joy, though he absolutely is. It says God is love. I mean, this is, just sit on this for a second. What does that mean? God is love the noun. God exhibits love the verb. God is lovely as an adjective. What do we even do with that? I love how Piper says this. I got to quit using the word love as describing the word love. I got to figure that out. Stinking words. God's absolute fullness of life and truth. This is uh, Piper's best, John Piper's best attempt at trying to understand what it means by God is love. God's absolute fullness of life and truth and beauty and goodness and all other perfections 
is such that he is not only self-sufficient, but also in his very nature, overflowing. God is so absolute, so perfect, so complete, so full, so inexhaustibly, inexhaustibly resourceful, so joyful that he is by nature a giver, a worker for others, a helper, a protector. So so far, we'll finish it out here in a second. He's so full. God is so full that by nature, he has to overflow. He has to. He's, it's not that he's just ever even keel and not lacking, constantly flowing. He's this ever flowing, ever going, ever resourceful being, okay? He goes on to say this. What it means to be God is to be full enough always to overflow and to never need, never murmur, never point. God is love. The implications of this for the way we live are big. To think of God as love. He's the epitome, the way that he constantly gives himself away. We can look to him and go, that's what love looks like. That's what love looks like. But it's not just that God is love. Um, Here's what's interesting, why love is also the greatest. Number two, love fulfills the law. And that's not me saying that. You could turn, if you want to, to Matthew 22. There's this lawyer who comes up and asks Jesus, teacher, what's the greatest of the law? the greatest law of them all, the commandment and the law. Jesus answers this, you shall love the Lord your God with all of your heart, all of your soul, and with all of your mind. And then if you skip down to verse 39, it says this, which I know we're all familiar with. The second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. What we miss is the next verse in verse 40. We're aware of verse 36 and 39. Verse 40 says this, on these two commandments depend, uh, depend or hang the whole law and the prophets. So do me a favor, don't just sum up God, sum up all the Old Testament for me. How do we follow it? Love God and love your neighbor. Love, love. But it doesn't just fulfill the law. Love is at the epicenter of our own faith, how we love God, not just how God loves us. If you want to, you could turn to Galatians 5, 6. It says this, in Christ Jesus, neither circumcision nor uncircumcision means anything. You ready? Here's what it matters. It doesn't matter what you bring to the table. It doesn't matter what rated R movies you have and haven't seen. It doesn't matter whether you grew up in church right now. It doesn't matter if you looked at porn on your way in. It doesn't matter. It doesn't matter. Being accepted by grace, you want to work it out from this day forward. You want to continue to process Jesus Christ. Here it is, listen, but faith working through love. God doesn't want your begrudging submission. He wants your love. He wants your affections. It fulfills our faith. Even what we're doing right now, even how we're we're, we're processing sitting down under the banner of the word of God and going, God, teach me, teach me. Every time you pray and you say, God, I want to know more about you. Every time you open up your word as an individual and you say, God, I want to know more about you. Listen to what Paul says this. Love is the reason we learn about God. In 1 Timothy 1.5, the goal of our instruction is love from a pure heart and good conscience and sincere faith. The reason we want to know God, the reason we have faith in God and how we fulfill that faith, the reason we serve and continue to exhibit um, our nature towards his nature, the reason, the reason, the reason should always be love. Love. Now, I'm intentionally not giving you a definition because... I, I walk through um, as many definitions as I could find. You know, usually when you come up to something like this, like, well, what is love? How do we define love? And, um, I, you know, you look up Google, of course. You have to start everywhere, uh, start Google with everything. Uh, but then I, I have this old dictionary from 1828. It's Webster's Dictionary. And every time I came across a, a definition of love, it started with this kind of emotional deal, right? 
It started with this, there's this strong emotion or feeling. And that's real problematic because though that's true, that's not a complete idea of what this is. So when we say we want to um, walk out our faith in love, and I love Jesus Christ, we're not just talking about feelings, but we're also not removing them. So how do we even begin to, to navigate all this, which we're going to get to here in a second. Besides that, let me share a few things with you, that, which I think is important. Um, these are just, you can have these ones for free when it comes to why love is the greatest. In Colossians 3.14, listen to this. Love, which binds everything together in perfect harmony. Stop. You hear that? It's love that binds everything together. We're going to get at different definitions. Just breathe right now. Love. Love binds everything together. Hope doesn't. Faith doesn't. Mercy doesn't. Love does. Love binds everything together. Love also is the thing that covers a multitude of sins in Proverbs 17. You're not, you, you can begrudgingly try to make yourself, okay, I'm just going to forgive them. No, no, no. It's love that's going to get you over those offenses. It's love, parents, you ready for this? It's love that has us discipline our children. My millennial generation is killing me. Um, it's love. It's not non-loving to discipline your children. Okay, these things are not counter to one another. It's, it's, a, it's a lovely thing, a lovely, it's a loving thing to discipline your children. It's out of love. There are moments where I want to discipline my children and it ain't coming from love, right? That's not a good time to discipline my children. But there are other times where I should discipline my children and I don't because I'm like, oh, they're so cute, right? Well, that's not loving either. And, and whoever's in the room, you might fall in one of those categories. If God is love and love is the reason we discipline, we need to discipline need a discipline. I had to say that. I've been waiting for a parenting moment, right? Spank your children. Um, yeah, no. <laughs> um, um, not only that, you know, in, in John 13, uh, Jesus makes this crazy declaration. And this is, this becomes difficult again, by whose definition the world will look at us and they're going to know you follow Jesus Christ by the way that we love each other in this room. That's a crazy thought. And I believe in Jesus' promises here. The world will know us by the way that we love each other. Now, I get it. The world on the outside will go, uh, they love and they're bigots or whatever it is. But, but all we have in our pocket here is to go, well, well here, I want to love you. You love me and hope that Jesus is right. That the world will know the way that we love each other. But again, we have to begin to get at uh, how we define that. First Corinthians is the last one. First Corinthians six fourteen. It says this, let all that you do be done in love. So it's not just walking out, just everything. Let it permeate. It's not just what holds it together. It's all in all. So um, I was trying to think of an example, and this might be the worst example I can come up with, but I'm just going to try for it. Um, How love and why love is described as the greatest in 1 Corinthians 13. What is it? Is it saying there's a hierarchy to things and love is the pinnacle? of those things. And I don't think that's the case as I read it. The word greatest is just megas. It's where we get our word like large or mega from, right? And so what, what does this have to do? And I think it has far more to do with expansiveness, meaning, um, so there's a, a gaming in Europe, there's this gaming uh, company who uh, came out this year. Uh, I think they tried to uh, um, prototype it last year, but it's called Christmas Tinner. 
And essentially what it is, is it's um, this Christmas dinner in this tin can, and it has 12 different parts of the Christmas deal just kind of smashed together in this can, right? And so it's kind of like mashed potatoes on top, and then like, uh, I don't know, name something else, turkey, I have no idea, right? It's going to all this, and you look at it, and so I watched this video, this guy opens the can, and just like, and it's this, this gelatinous blob, right? And you can see the, the, the pies there, and you can see like uh, parsnips are in there, and broccoli in there, but it's just this blob. And it's like, and their whole appeal is, Hey, you miss Christmas dinner. You can still game and just put this, you know, gelatinous blob on the plate and mush it together. And you ate your Christmas dinner, Christmas dinner. Right. And you look at, you go one, that's disgusting. Um, but two, I looked at the, the, the gelatinous blob and I thought, what's holding that together right now? Like what's pressing the pie to the turkey. Why is that staying together right now? If we had it on our plate, it would be separated. That's love. Okay, you see what I'm saying? <laughs> I went for it. I just had to go for it. My, my point is this. We see a God and we go, he's absolutely just and he holds to righteous standards and he will judge. Now we process judgment counter to showing mercy. How can he be uh, uh, someone who's going to judge and yet be merciful? And yet in, in understanding all this, all we have, there's no other word we have, we hope and we pray that the answer is love. Love is what holds these things together. Love is what gets us around, okay, grace and joy. This is why love is the greatest. It's not just one side part, different kind of meal analogy. One side part of the meal, it's like salt sprinkled in the whole meal. It's, it's something that puts this thing together and holds that gelatinous blob together. It's this idea that we can understand love is what puts our faith together. It's the greatest. It's the most expansive. Okay, that's the best way that I think I can try to articulate what he's trying to say. And we'll leave it at that. But here's the second part. We've got to move on with our text. From there, an understanding that love is the greatest, not just because God is love, it fulfills our faith, it fulfills the law, it's why we instruct, it's why we discipline, it's why we uh, 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 have a faith and to live it out, it's so on and so on and so on, it's what holds all these things together. Now we're to pursue love. And this becomes extremely complicated. If not defining what love was, I think pursuing love might be just as much, if not more, complicated. As you can see in 14.1, it says this, pursue love. Love, and then it goes on to to desire gifts. Here's what's um, cool, I think, about this word pursue. Dioko is the Greek word, um, and it's used about 48 times in the New Testament, and only three times it's um, translated pursue. This is one of those times. The other 45 times it's translated, it's translated persecute. Persecute. As a matter of fact, Paul's going to use the same word in the next chapter describing himself when he said, I, I, Paul, persecuted the church. So like, what is, what's, and I think what um, Paul is trying to, uh, by the spirit, trying to communicate here when, when we think of love is aggressively go after Don't be passive about it. When Paul is persecuting the church, he's not falling asleep at night thinking about whatever, then wakes up and goes, okay, oh yeah, that's right, I'm persecuting the church. He doesn't just like kind of haphazardly deal with it. It's consuming who he is to the point of killing other humans. And so as he does this, as he persecutes the church in the same way that um, a predator goes after prey, we need to see love and we need to aggressively attack it. We need to be intentional about going after it. This is what I think he's saying. Pursue this love. Now, this creates um, 
a very complicated idea. Because when it says pursue love, is it, is it saying pursue um, the actions of love, meaning do things that, that would be described as love, or pursue becoming something, being love? Now, this, this is weird because, check this out, if you have a coworker you don't like, you don't, you don't like him, so you, sure, you definitely don't love him, right? Okay, so you, you don't love them, you feel like you have kind of even a borderline hatred for them, or whoever this is, right? Whoever this is, your neighbor leaves out their trash cans too long, I don't know what it is, right? You, you begin to, to stew on this, and you have this strong non-love affection towards them. Can you make yourself love them? If the command, which it is an imperative here, can you make yourself, if pursuing love is the option, can you make yourself love them? Now, I'm going to argue no. Okay? Now, this is really complicated. It's telling us to pursue love. But if this was the case, well, I would say, if you're single in the room, I'd have you raise your hand right now, and then we can do connect thing, but we won't do that. Okay? But if it wasn't, then I could simply go, hey, A, meet B, love him. Right? So you go... We're going to get married tomorrow, right? It would be that easy. But you look at certain people and you go, nope, right? And you, and you can't make yourself love him. You can't make yourself love her. So this is, this is difficult. And so this gets at something, okay? Let's keep digging. Let's keep digging. That. This is what we have to go through when we come to a text like this. Where does wanting come from? Where does that even whole deal come from? Which this, um, this gets at something. And this is, if you ever want to read... There's been tons of writing on this by Hudson Taylor, James K. Smith, and You Are What You Love. Um, you can read Jonathan Edwards' books, Charity and Its Fruits. He has a book on 1 Corinthians 13. And all these guys are getting at this idea of um, at the core of who you are, let's ask a question. What's there? Because some of us believe will is at the core of who we are. And I don't think that's the way the Bible describes you. Meaning you can will to do something. That's definitely the American narrative for sure. But I don't think will is at the core of who you are. I think scripture describes affection at the core of who you are. Uh, Let me quote Piper again. I think he speaks really well on some of this. That's why I'm quoting him as much as I am. Listen to what he says. Beneath the will with its decisions, there is the heart which produces our preferences, and these preferences guide the will. If you don't, we don't believe Piper, that's fine. We can't argue with Luke 6, 45. The good person out of the good treasure of his heart produces good. Do you hear that? Let me read it again. The good person out of the good treasure of his heart produces good. The evil person out of his evil treasure produces evil. For out of the abundance of the heart, his mouth speaks. Did you hear that? An evil person can't do good. A good person will naturally produce good. This is all Matthew 7 stuff, you guys. This is all Matthew 7. Let's go back to like, you have a tree and it's an apple tree and I love growing trees. As I grow these trees, I can't make my apple tree produce lemons. I can't do that because it's an apple tree. I have to graft something on or I have to do something that's not natural to that tree. And in the same way, there's something there. So hear me when I say this only. And this is an exclusive. If you're not a believer in here, uh, I don't apologize for what I'm going to say, but you're going to feel a little on the outside right now. Only, only God can do that. God is the one 
who changes, who molds. This is why Reformed theology is so important to understand in the extents. Where you, uh, or who you are at your core and why you do what you do comes from somewhere. And we believe that scripture tells us that core place comes from God. God does that. And so now we're really stuck. But God does this at the same time, am I to pursue love? How do I do that? And so um, here's what I would say. This, becomes, this command becomes extremely complicated as we go on. Um, I think every parent in the room who has an older child, let's say older than 18 years old, I think uh, intuitively understands what this means. Meaning um, you, you at no point in your life, or I'll speak for them, or I'll just speak even for me right now, there's nowhere in, in me trying to make men or godly men or godly women out of my children, um, as Candace and I navigate this, we can't make them love Jesus. We can't. But what we can do is we can foster an environment We can put things around them. We can lead them. We can speak into them. We can act in such a way that they see Jesus as someone beautiful. They see the bride, his bride. They see her as a place they want to be around and someone they want to be around. We can foster that, but we can't light that fire. We can't. So we, if you have older kids, you realize how helpless you are in this. You realize you could never make your child love you, love Jesus, but you can do your best to foster an environment to do it. And I think that's what 1 Corinthians 14.1 is saying. I think it's telling us to pursue these things and pray and pray and pray and pray. God, give me the ability to love well. Give me the ability to love well. Now, Let's put up that chart if we can. Can you put up that chart again for me? So the last part is where I want to finish because this is where it becomes complicated. In pursuing love, you can put the very last one, we have this idea of context. But I want to go a stage up and I want us to to hold to the fact that when we're pursuing love and we're talking about this verb, how do we love, how do we exhibit this love, scripture, and you're not going to be surprised by this, is exclusively going to hold to the fact that we should be looking through the lens of God. And so let's go back to your kids. There are moments when your kids want to be loved a certain way or you want to love your kids a certain way or they're just being brats or you're just being a jerk. Honestly, let's call it what it is. And in both those circumstances, hear me, we need God's love. We need to look at how does God love my child right now? And now I need to pursue that kind of love. There are moments when, honestly, my spouse, she may annoy, well, I annoy my spouse, okay? She never annoys me, but I annoy her a lot, okay? Okay? Or the, the, there are moments where, like, we'll disagree on how we should do something, specifically driving, okay? Whatever it is, okay? How we should do something. But, but hear me. W- when those moments when I don't want to be a good husband or don't want to love her in this way, I need to do this. How does God love my spouse? How does God love them in this moment? We need God's love here. We need God's love when it comes to disciplining our children. We need God's love in the way that we navigate our neighbor. We need God's standard of love the way that we love Trump, the way that we love partisan politics, the way that we engage the immigrants. We need love's way to do it. How does love help us navigate specifically God's love, God's standard? 
So God says, do this. You really, really want to do this. Now, here's what's interesting. As we navigate this whole conversation of love and it says pursue love, it is very possible, if not probable, we'll come to different conclusions. But at least as believers, our motivation will be the same. So some of you in this room, let's, let's just call it, okay, here it is. Some of you in this room will go, listen, I may not like Trump, but at least he's not going to kill babies. And you go, listen, I don't like Trump because of the way that he treats the immigrant. Let's say both are just right, which pro- most likely both are not completely right in the way they think they're right. But if both are the cases, both people in that moment are going, yeah, but, but this is the best way forward in the way that God would love the world. Listen, whatever conclusion we arrive to, it's not going to be the same always. I get it, but at least our motivation is one of which that we go, okay, at least we're both asking the question, how does God love? How does God love right now in this moment? How does God love? How, how would he be here? And here's my last statement before I give you two quotes. There's only two words that I think can best describe how God loves to help you navigate every single relationship, every type of interaction you have. Selfless death. That when you come to the table, you lay aside your opinions, you lay aside your preferences, and you die. And you shrivel up, and you give God control, and you say, what you say, I will be obedient to, master. Selfless death. That's God's path forward. And we saw it not just in our Savior because he saves us from our sin, but as a perfect embodiment of that. Jesus goes to the cross with a selfless death. He gives himself away. So I'll leave you with two quotes. One is, of course, by Spurgeon, by necessity. The Holy Spirit alone. Listen to this. This is important because as you ask the question, well, how do I love? What do I do? Listen, all we've got to do is be at the feet of Jesus. Be at the feet of Jesus. The context is over and over. What do I do with my neighbor? What do I do with my child? It doesn't tell me what I'm supposed to do with my child when she keeps flipping over things. Or what doesn't tell me I'm supposed to do with my neighbor when they keep throwing trash on my side of the yard. It doesn't tell me what to do in that moment. Do I throw the trash back to teach them a lesson? Or do I go talk with them? What am I supposed to do, right? It's not a real example. Um, Yeah. Um, So all I have is to listen to the Spirit. And this is what Spurgeon gets at. The Holy Spirit alone can teach men, and I would say men and women, how to love and give them power to do so. Love's art is learned at no other school but at the feet of Jesus, where the Spirit of love rests on those who learn from him. You got to be close to Jesus when you do this. You got to navigate Jesus, teach me, show me, teach me, show me. And there's this last quote from a guy named Francis Schaeffer in his book, The Mark of a Christian. He says this, love and the unity it attests to is the mark of Christ, the mark Christ gave Christians to wear before the world. Only with this mark may the world know that Christians are indeed Christians and that Jesus was sent by the Father. This this quote is really important. You need to hear it because um, somebody who's not a believer at your work can say God is love. And you can actually agree with that statement, but you don't agree with what they're saying in that statement. So this becomes complicated because the way they would describe love is not the way that you would describe love. Here's, check it out. Here's what's great about this whole deal. Forget both of your opinions. In that moment, you've got a choice. You could, is it more loving in this moment? Jesus, teach me. Jesus, show me. Is it more loving to address the fact that they believe in love the same way Mark Zuckerberg believes he has 100 million friends on Facebook? Or is it more loving for me to bite my tongue right now? I don't have the answer for that, but I'll tell you what you need. You need the spirit. 
And he'll teach you, he'll guide you, he'll show you. But whatever you do, love in that unity therein, the world will see the way that you love and God loving you and say, there's something different there. There's a density to your love. I pray that we can see this beyond all the clutter and even the beauty of what Christmas gives us in the next few days. Um, I, I really am grateful to be able to celebrate Christmas with you guys. Um, let me pray for you. Father, thank you so much for who you are. Thanks for... Um, yeah, just your goodness and your grace towards us. Um, thank you that um, as we process the word love and all of its uh, kind of com- you know, complicated matter and nature and definitions and all that, that you're with us, helping us see. So I just pray a blessing that you would um, be with us as we um, navigate the relationships with our kids and our, our spouse or our future spouse or our neighbor or our coworker or a classmate or our family that's in town right now, maybe sitting next to them. Like how we navigate and love, we really want to set aside all of who we are and we want to die to ourselves, and we want to love the way that you would call us to love. I don't have the answer for that. Matter of fact, no one in this room really has the answer for that. But spirit, you do. And so I pray you now begin to drop really good nuggets within our mind to show us do this. This is how. And then more than that, that you would mold our heart towards your love. We have hearts of stone so often. Help us. Give us this heart of flesh as you tell us in Ezekiel you would as we're softened becoming new creatures every day by your grace and sanctification. We love you. In Jesus' name, amen.